Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Oh, I'm I'm a dream customer. Because <laughs> you never return. I never, I, I'm a dream <laughs> customer. I will just keep it and suffer with it. <laughs> this is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and the Wall Street Journal. This week, returns. The more we shop, the more we return. And the more we shop online, it gets even worse. Retailers have embraced easy, free returns as a way to grab market share, but it's coming at a cost to the companies and to the planet. We'll look at just how bad the data is, talk about what can be done to manage returns, and hopefully we're going to find some companies that are getting it right. This won't be the only time we talk about returns, but we're starting out today with a look at just how bad the problem has gotten. Then, in a sign of good news, it's getting harder for fashion brands to get away with greenwashing. Yay! Applause all around. In the UK, three brands have come under the gun by the nation's trade regulator for making green claims they can't back up. And here in the US, a class action lawsuit against H&M for their labeling practices has appeared in New York. We love accountability, and it's a good week to talk about how we're seeing more of it. Then we're gonna finish with things big and little that are pressing our buttons. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Shilla Kim Parker and Rachel Kibbe. Hi, guys. Hey, Christina. Hi, Christina. Shilla is the CEO and co-founder of Thrilling, a marketplace for vintage powered by mom and pop shops. And Rachel is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm focused on circularity in fashion. So we had a couple of days ago, really interesting, was that an email exchange or or Slack? I can't remember, but was it email? We we went long. (laughs) We went long. (laughs) Long form. We might as well write each other letters. I sent you a handwritten (laughs) note about it, actually. (laughs) We had been looking at the latest Vogue cover um, with Olena uh, Zelenska, and we had really different takes. I have to say... I was like, yeah, this is meaty. This is not just a fashion editorial. We're like seeing portraitures, portraits, what, you know, what's their life like in there? There's like sandbags and the presidential, whatever that was, compound. Um, You guys had a different take, I think, than I did, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm in between probably your reaction and Rachel's reaction. But first, you know, so Olega Zelenska, the the wife of Ukrainian president, gave a profile to Vogue um, recently. And it was an interview plus a, a, a fashion spread, and that's kind of kind of what we're reacting to. Rachel, you, you go first because I feel like you had a intense reaction. Rachel hated it, I think. Right, and I'm usually I have such, especially with industry stuff, I'm a little like almost toe the line a little bit. But this, <laughs> I, I also I have to preface it: I did not read the article, and I only looked at one image. I just saw right, what had been first sent. Rea- to your us. first reaction, and I You're gave right, my exactly. first. I called it my yeah. knee jerk, re- my emotional reaction. You're right, but I, I felt a little bad afterwards when I re- researched it. But this was my emotional reaction. <laughs> right? No, yeah. <laughs> oh no, 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh no, this is not good. And then we went back and forth because Christina said, you know, this is great. This is neat. And I thought, well, let's unpack why I felt that way. I did end up looking at more of the images and reading some of it. And I still actually did feel, oh no, (laughs) because I think Vogue, Vogue has its roots in selling not only a product, but uh, an aspirational lifestyle, right? That's rooted in the exclusion of different classes and cultural differences. Um, That has changed a lot. It has come a long way, but the history doesn't disappear. And so a photo shoot Mm. featuring luxury clothing in the backdrop of a city destroyed by war and surrounded by active men on duty and then representing a person, uh, yes, she is the first lady, but she happens to fit the aesthetic profile of what Vogue narrowly upheld for too Mm. long. And so all of those things combined made me really uneasy. Uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I didn't have a reaction of, this is terrible, but I did have a reaction of, wait a minute, wait a minute. Huh? <laughs> and and is this a good idea or a bad idea? Like that's that was kind of my reaction. It was like immediate kind of engagement with the idea of it. Yeah. And I thought I did have a, a fleeting thought of because the medium itself is distracting, wouldn't it have been better in a New York Times or Wall Street Journal? That's what I was but gonna then, ask you. Actually, Christina, too, do you think it might have worked better in a different outlet? No way. No way. Different audience. Yeah, I've gone completely 180 on it because now that I've engaged with it more and have researched her more, like, so first of all, like, she didn't come out of, I think it would have been different if she had come out of nowhere and done this Vogue profile, but she's actually, she's been doing the work. She's been giving speeches. She's flown to Washington. She's been in every news um, paper plus um, every television news outlet she's given interviews. The second and third reactions I had was, you know, the Zelenskys are so brilliant at making sure that we're paying attention mm-hmm. and we don't forget about mm-hmm. them. And that this, it, would we be even having this conversation? No. Right. If well, not and they, for the decision. And this yeah. came at a moment, quite frankly, this war has been going on since February. Right. And people were super excited about it at first. The world kind of rose and did sanctions against Russia and et cetera and so forth. And then it started to fall to the back. If you notice, if you look at news, it has not been top of mind in the news for a while now. I mean, this is one savvy administration over there in Ukraine. The guy who's head of digital for him, it's extraordinary. I wish we had him here in the United States, as a matter (laughs) of fact. Um, But, you know, Elena Zelenska has not been out trying to build a career for herself outside of this. She was very quiet at first and very quiet prior to the war. So this is an effort... This would not be the same in the New York Times because the New York Times has been covering this war. People, New mm-hmm. York Times readers know about it, right. but I don't know about Vogue readers. Well, they do, but now we're talking about it. Right. We're talking about yeah. it to maybe in That's a new way point. into a new audience. I mean, I think my feeling is like, I, I was like, intellectually, this should be in a different maybe fashion magazine mm-hmm. that has been more culturally accepting and maybe, mm. um, but we wouldn't be talking about it. Like I'd right. be or something like that. I don't, we wouldn't be talking about it. Right. One more thing that I want to say that I thought was really significant is that in the photo editorials, which were shot by Annie Leibovitz, I mean, they did not, mm. they did not go, lo- go low on this, but mm-hmm. um, they, if you look at the, at the captions, they don't identify, they don't say, oh, this is Prada. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. And they just say, here she is yeah. in this. And then one. Me too. Me yeah, too. Well, that was the right. And I, w- I felt relief. I felt relief that they didn't dress her in some designers. And like that would have been. Yeah. And, and that was, I agree with you completely, Christina. Yeah, it was. They did mention in one place that she was wearing all Ukrainian designers. And they named them all, which is great. Totally appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, quickly, we had a few people 
that we're excited about Brad Pitt's clothes this week, or at least one particular I, outfit. One. <laughs> yes. Just have another look. I, I've got to pull this up right now on the internet. <laughs> I just have to say Brad with the cat. Yeah, I got to take another look at this. It's a great skirt. He wore a skirt. He did. Look great. Um, it got a lot of attention. The Wall Street Journal right. wrote about it. I think Jacob Gallagher, who um, is a former colleague of mine and or current colleague, and uh, um, and I adore his writing, and he always finds these quirky subjects. But he wrote this piece tying um, the success of Brad Pitt's skirt worn at a premiere for the movie he's promoting to uh, sort of the publicity that it got and how how successful it was because everybody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it because it so, wasn't just a kilt. Yeah. yeah. It's a good skirt. I liked it too. My optimistic take on this and this this trend in general yeah. of men sort of experimenting with fashion and even um, going into gender fluid or, or borrowing from female fashion is thank yeah. goodness. Like culture is finally evolving and it's so yes. cute that men are trying something new and they're having fun experimenting like teenagers or women in the early 20s. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting and it's like I'm here for it. My yeah. end stage capital lens is men are having to commoditize their looks through style now as women always have. There's this there's this I, I kind of, well, I, I've wow. been like, God, you well, because a lot it. of uh, the commentary about what Brad was wearing <laughs> is he's doing it for PR. It's not just enough to show up in a suit anymore for men that they need, they need that wow factor. And I mean, I think yeah. Harry Styles uh-huh. has, has done it beautifully. I don't know. I mean, I feel like if, I, I mean, it almost took me two looks to realize it was a skirt. I don't feel like this is a flashy way. He could have worn a <laughs> yeah. mini skirt with sequins and then you would be like, okay, well, he's clear, you know, but he, this, <laughs> this could be like, you know, mm. giant shorts. The you boots almost, You almost yeah. didn't even notice it's a skirt. The boots, mm-hmm. the boots definitely help. I actually, my only, comp- I actually really like the outfit. It feels actually natural on him. Yeah. Um, it's like, it feels like his style, something that he actually might, you know, pick out of his closet to wear. I actually don't like the boots. Yeah, I think it the proportions. Oh, exactly what that's we what I mean. That. With like men are playing oh. with um, style in a way that the proportions we, are wrong. That's true. I totally agree yeah. with you, except that I, I just I don't think it's recent. I feel like it's been, especially like rock star, like David Bowie, Kurt yeah. Cobain, Andre three thousand, and then like recently, Crew. yeah, exactly. Like people have been wearing dresses. I mean, men have been wearing dresses and and uh, and, and the idea more, that do you guys remember when Mark Jacobs wore. Uh, he started wearing skirts. He, t- he started taking bows at his shows. Yep. Like, yes. this is like yes. seven yes. years ago, yes. right? Then he wore them to the yes. Met Ball with the Pilgrim totally. shoes. And pearls. Do you remember that? He wears pearl earrings. Yeah. I think that, I feel like that moment, Mark was still, when he did that, he was he was still leading ideas. Yes. And I think it it started to bleed out because after that, we just mm. started seeing a little bit more, a little bit there. And I, I feel like if you're doing the timeline, it would be Mark in, you know, in the skirt at the Met Ball and Brad at that, you know, in that, I forget the name of the designer because I'd not heard of him. They could, the Wall Street Journal couldn't even reach the designer for comment. He's so obscure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's I very like Brad that. Pitt. It's not right. even somebody who has it's a website. Totally awesome. Yeah, it's like totally a friend awesome. of his probably who just made it. Okay. Well, that was that. Our, these are moments of levity and wonderful things happening in fashion. Now to talk about something. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this because we're talking about returns and that sounds... Like, who cares about returns, right? It's an afterthought. Send them back. But it turns out it is a huge topic. Mm-hmm. There's too many returns. The problem is getting worse as more shoppers 
order online from sites that make returning cheap and easy. It's all across retail. It's not just in fashion. I mean, I return a lot of stuff to Amazon. I'm sure you guys do too if it comes wrong. A recent New York Times article took a long Mm. look at how retailer inventory has built up as inflation was pinching consumer pocketbooks. And returns are making it worse because... Obviously, there's more stuff coming back into those warehouses. The National Retail Federation and Apris Retail, which is a software and analytics firm, it reported that in 2021, shoppers returned an average of 16.6% of their purchases, up from 10.6% in 2020, and more than double the rate in 2019. I know for a fact that's much higher than that in fashion. I hear that from retailers all the time. The data in the fashion industry is jarring. Uh, McKinsey, in a survey that was run just before COVID hit, found that 25% of apparel bought online was returned. And let's remember, that's an average. So some brands are getting way more than 25%. Right. And this kills me. An estimated 10% of all returns end up where? In a landfill. McKinsey also found that brands see it as a necessary evil, um, these returns, and they don't prioritize fixing returns. Instead, they're focused on shipping and logistics costs. I've talked about that with Rachel in the past, and we'll get back to that. Um, Because it's kind of fascinating when you start to picture a warehouse with things going out and not being designed for things to come back in. This is a huge problem, not just for fashion brands, but Mm -hmm. for any progress to be made on sustainability. Returns mean more waste, they mean more emissions from shipping, and they contribute to the fast fashion mindset of this devalued apparel. The vast majority of what's being returned includes polyester. So if that ends up in landfills or the ocean, you're looking at more plastic waste, just as we're waking up to how bad that is for the planet and for our health. It's such a messy topic. Let's start digging in. First, um, I have to tell you that sitting by my desk is a box of clothes that I ordered for my daughter from Everlane, and I got a whole bunch of it in two different sizes so she could get the size that fit best, and I'm going to return, only it's mm-hmm. been sitting there for a month. Yeah, so, And I feel right. guilty because I actually know that retailers need to get the returns quickly so that if they're going to sell them, they're not like old merchandise. And so... I'm doing a disservice to Everlane by even having that there and being so lazy. But the truth is I... I, I love being able to do returns. I actually despise having to pack that stuff up and take it off yeah. someplace and get rid of it. Right. What about you guys? Well, I think it's like the way we shop now, you know, there's a lot of internet native brands. So I don't, I don't think it's like, it's, I always go back to like, it's not yeah. the consumer's fault. It's a system issue. I try not to, I really, I, Almost because, though, it's out of laziness because it'll sit there and then I'll miss my return window or I just end up keeping something that doesn't fit because I don't want to return it. It's not really because— I'm exactly the same way. Are you? Yeah, I think that uh, the majority of returns are because of fast fashion. Like, it's—we've turned into a culture that sort of wants to order as much as possible. And maybe—I think there's a lot of wishful thinking. Um, Yeah. Maybe I'll keep this because this was so cheap. And then people yeah. get disappointed because it doesn't fit or the quality's low or it doesn't mm-hmm. look like how it did online. And then they return it. And and the problem is, is a lot of people think it goes back onto the shelf. And y- usually it doesn't. I knew that there was a massive returns issue when... So the only time we will actually return something is we've moved into a fixer-upper of a house. Mm-hmm. So we're doing small projects around the house and... And we'll order something for the house from Wayfair or something like that. And it'll come back, come in in a size that we didn't expect or a style that doesn't actually quite work. 
And even if it's something like an outdoor chair, so something pretty big, we'll try to start initiate the returns process and they'll say, just keep it and we'll send you another one. And so then, and I'm like, whoa, okay, clearly there's something afoot here because that cannot make any kind of economic sense. Really? Th- yeah. That they would rather just right. write it off rather than get it back. Exactly. So it's more expensive for them to take it back. Yeah. Right. There's like 17 levels of this. Rachel, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but sometime a year or two ago, I interviewed you about returns. I don't even remember why, but I so remember the conversation because it (laughs) it had never occurred to me until I spoke with you how well warehouses are, you know, we're so efficient at building these warehouses for shipping stuff out so that we can get it within a day or two of ordering it. But you explained to me what uh, just a, like, chaotic bumble mess yeah. it is on the way back into the warehouse. Bumble like we mess. Haven't, yeah. <laughs> bumble mess. Is that a word? <laughs> it is a, it's a word it. now. It is now. So, <laughs> okay. The reason you interviewed me is because I ran a business for about a year. It was a startup. It was a pilot startup um, where I was basically trying to solve for this returns problem specifically for brands that don't want their inventory liquidated and mm-hmm. are trying to become more conscious. And I was intaking their excess inventory and returns, but specifically their returns and sorting it and then selling it in mystery boxes. It was the hardest year of my life in a lot of Mm. ways, but it gave me direct hands-on experience. Apparel is the highest returned um, product category in the world, really. Up to a third of apparel is returned, and uh, a lot of it does not end up back on shelves, as we said. So brands are losing up to, you know, 30 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Insane. Yeah. Oh, my God. And they're they're worried about it's their margins. Yeah. But, Ra- Rachel, what happens? Like, walk me through this. So yeah. I know, I can picture, like, the Amazon worker and the robot picking things up and packing it up and shipping to me. But what happens when I return something? Where well, does... Yeah. It's process. Well, it goes back to their distribution center warehouse, which isn't necessarily owned by them and is really set up to send things back out, but not to take things back in and resell them. And you can understand why. I mean, if you walk through that process a little bit. So when it comes back to the distribution center or warehouse, there would need to be someone to inspect it, to smell it, to recategorize it, and to re-merchandise it somehow. And a lot of times what happens is not that. It just goes into a box with a bunch of other things, and then it's mixed all together. And then eventually the warehouse will call the brand and call their CFO and say, you have 13 pallets of returns. What do you want us to do with them? And either it's liquidated or it's exported to another country or it's incinerated. And if you have product that you don't want on the market, a lot of times it'll be incinerated. So I was taking in, I was working with brands to to take this in and to sort it and to re-merchandise it in mystery boxes so it wouldn't compete with their full price product. In mystery boxes? So they would say, you know, $35 and you yeah. get a surprise if you buy it? You, yeah, $99 and you'll get like $250 worth of um, product. And, if, you know, we were selling Everlane and like Boyish and Low and Sons. You know, part of the problem... It's a cool idea. It was it a great a cool idea. idea. It's hard to scale. It was really an amazing experience. But it was it was really eye-opening in terms of like what brands would tell us they were sending us versus what we got and the condition in which it would actually be in. So we might oh. think we were going to get XYZ sweater, but we'd right. actually get a different style and it would have a little hole in it or something like that. Oh. Or it may not, you know, it, this kind of category of inventory, there aren't like, there isn't inventory management systems for the trade of it or tracking of it. It's really labor intensive and it's very hard to scale this kind of business, especially when the brand is really careful about where they want it to go. I'm trying to picture this because why don't they just 
I mean, it comes back into the warehouse. I've got, you know, that that box of Everlane goods. Why don't they I'm just gonna return? <laughs> yeah. yeah, why don't they have somebody it's there? It's $800 billion worth of returns every year, right? It's like something that scale, right? Who's paying for that? Yeah, I mean, so you pay somebody. But the warehouse? <laughs> whatever. Or the brand? To, like work at the warehouse and sort these things and put them back Christina on the shelf. Christina would like to talk to Jeff Bezos and say, yes, what's I wrong would. with you? Yeah. <laughs> I've got some ideas. Yes, well, what they're starting to do, they're starting to partner with companies that do this because it's your warehouses that you're working from. It, you don't necessarily own that warehouse or pay that labor there, you know, so you can't just get them to work in a different way, especially if it's like they're going to be earning a lot less per unit for more work. You know what I mean? It's more expensive. You mean the, the, the pickers? The, I'm going to call yeah, them the cleaners. the sorter, so the refurbisher, okay. the cleaner, the remerchandiser. So there's now new, I mean, that's sort of onto another topic, um, but resale service providers are now becoming basically, they're calling themselves re-commerce re companies, but they're dealing a lot with returns and they're partnering with distribution centers and warehouses, even oh. going in-house to establish, like, Renewal Workshop was one of the first re-commerce companies ever, and they got bought by a logistics company this year called Blackman. Um, and Blackman? They, yeah, Blackman. B-L-A-C-K? B-L-E-C-K-M-A-N-N, I believe. Okay. And they're, they purchased Renewal Workshop, and now in their fulfillment centers, they're doing, you know, inspection, sorting, refurbishment, cleaning, um, re-merchandising on white-label websites for brands. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Yeah. But I think that I think the fundamental question, Christina, that you're raising is really important. It's like such a huge part of your business. So much. I mean, again, eight hundred billion dollars. I think it's valued at in terms of up lost to, yeah. product, right? Yeah, it's so up to massive billion lost. And yeah. so it's so it's why wouldn't companies invest in the infrastructure, or why wouldn't they address this problem? And I think. My impression, um, and Rachel, tell me what you think. My impression is just that it's there's a little bit of a resignation <laughs> among um, companies where it's just a necessary evil. It's just the cost of bus doing business almost. Yeah. To your point about the way that you shop for your daughter, I think companies expect that consumers expect now, especially because of the Amazonification of our of our own expectations of what we can receive and return online. Right. Um, we um, believe we're going to bend the world to cater to our sense of convenience and comfort. Yep. I want it tomorrow. I want free shipping, and I want to be able to return it anytime I want to. Um, yep. And if there's any friction in, along any part of that process. Um, that's an extremely negative experience for me, and I probably won't come back. It's, you've sure. lost my trust. And the cheapest customer for a brand is one that is returning, not acquiring new ones. So I think they think of it as a cost of doing business and of retaining their customers. Um, and, on, and also, I do think that there's a bias um, in general about focusing on kind of top-line revenue-generating initiatives yeah. versus investing in cost management strategies. And this, this, that's what this would be. Um, and so I, I think that's those are some of the reasons, um, and, and Rachel, let me know if you disagree, agree, some of the reasons why I feel like there's been inertia about addressing this issue. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But then you can take it a little further. It was a rounding error until it wasn't. Like it was a cost mm. of business until it wasn't, and it is no longer like that's why mm, Nike 30 has 30% is not 
right. error. Right. And I think it's kind of like <laughs> you, you see companies like Eddie Bauer, like Dick's partnering with um, re-commerce providers now to intake. The, the, a lot of what you see as re-commerce on large company websites or small company websites is actually their returns. There's this blurred line between what's actually used clothing and returns because it's oh, basically the same category of product, which is a very hard mm. to manage um, oftentimes, single unit SKU that needs to be inspected and retagged uh, needs to be handled by a human. And I think, kind of, in the in the way that the front end of the supply chain has be kind of kind of become a mess, and we're trying to redo it now, and it's tough, yeah. and there's a lot of money being lost uh, on the problems there. Same with the reverse supply chain. It's like it is a problem, but it's a systemic problem that's going to take a while to fix. You know who yeah. would be a monster at solving this problem? Who? Who? Rent the runway. Because they're exactly the opposite of most consumer brands. 98% of their of their products are, they, they have, they've had yes. to master that is this a reverse. Cool idea. Yes. And they clean everything. They have deals with dry cleaners. They're like. No, but not only do they have, it's not, it's more than deals with dry cleaners. They actually operate their own in-house dry cleaning system. I think it's the largest dry cleaning system um, oh, wow. Maybe around the world for sure in the U.S. Wow. Um, and they built all their tech and logistics and operations around receiving products back from customers. I think Jen Hyman said on a recent interview that it goes into 26 separate paths, to, uh, specific types of cleaning, yep. tailoring, putting yeah. it back onto the shelves to be reused again. And I imagine, you know, not that she isn't busy with with their <laughs> strategic priorities, but if they wanted to outsource that capability and know-how for other companies, that could be pretty powerful. Well, listen, they're getting into resale. They, they've announced that formally. Yeah. So resale is also returns. So maybe maybe they're getting into that. I wonder if that's interesting because they've they've been reselling their own stuff for years. Yep. You, they, you know they would sort of offer it to their clients yep. when they because you know they get like six seven wares out of something and then they want to sell it. They don't want it to get worn looking. So it's interesting that they're now doing resale. You know, yeah. expanding that they built they built the logistics for it right. So why not resell more? Yeah. Okay, we got we got to get Jen on here. She's a she's a great interview. That would be great. I want to say you know, Shilla, you mentioned a minute ago friction. There is some friction. I don't know if this is going to spread or not. I was curious about when I read this, but Boohoo, which is a f- fast fashion company, as we, as we know, has announced that they're going to start charging, I think, a pound 99 British pounds for returns, which you used to have to pay for returns or there'd be incredibly like 10 day windows to return and things like that. That was a long time ago. I thought it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to pay a pound 99 for a shirt you paid 12 pounds for? I mean, is this like, <laughs> Is this a really stupid idea for them? Or I think are we going to see more of this? I think it's a good slap on the wrist and sets precedent. Mm. That's how I look at it. Ah, and also in the UK, shipping's less. So it's a pretty big slap on the wrist when you can ship in the UK, I think, for like $4, four pounds. Meaning you think this is a good move, Rachel? Yeah, I do. And I'm glad yeah. Zara kind of started it or was the first fast fashion company that announced, I think, a similar sort of rate. Um, and then Boohoo followed. Everybody thought this is either a terrible business for, for Zara and you'll just they'll just remove it and not announce that um, because they'll yeah. alienate their customers. But you've seen others follow along and that shows you how big of a problem it is. You know, I don't know what shipping rates are like, but when, my first reaction was like, that seems like a Band-Aid on a geyser mm-hmm. because, it, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, most companies who are starting to do this are charging between 5 to $15 um, to just simply cover the cost of shipping, yeah. let alone all the costs and infrastructure that they've yet to build, um, which is how do you sort it back and get it back to the right place so it can be resold again. Um, 
So I think, you know, it's it's a movement in the right direction. Um, and on top of that, I think all of these companies are going to need to invest in that long-term infrastructure mm-hmm. of how do you um, sort inventory um, that comes back to get it to the right place. You know, there's another added value for companies like Zara that have a lot of stores, though. Because I know Nordstrom yeah. does this, too. They love to encourage people to return stuff in-store yep. because they get the person in the store. And rarely do people walk out without sniffing around and seeing if there's something else they like. So they right. actually can. Nordstrom has found that they, when they started making, they started putting returns desks really near a front door to make it super convenient for people to come in. I can't remember the number, but it was a, a more than 50% of the people who returned stuff also bought something new while they were there. I think there's also a more likelihood if you have people returning to store that it's actually going to go back on the shelf. Not always. I mean, I've even heard stories of the things you try on in a dressing room, especially in fast fashion um, retailers. Um, it's not enough for them to restock them. That those, oh my god! Yeah. So I mean, it's it's pretty bad. But I think there is more likelihood if you do encourage your customers to return in store, especially for a little higher value things that they're going to return. You know, because also yeah. with returns, think about this: it could be end of season. It might not, by the time it gets back, sorted, inspected, refurbished, cleaned, and restocked, yeah. um, mm-hmm. it might be out of season, you know? So there's there's a timing thing, especially as we have more and more seasons. So returning yeah. in store is, I think, a good direction. Whatever yeah. for everybody. It's funny, um, at Thrilling, we've looked at, um, there, to, to your point, Rachel, there's, there's now all these great startups in the space who are trying to tackle this problem from all sorts of different angles. There's yeah. one called Happy Returns. We are actually partnering with now, and they offer 5,000 locations across the U.S. If you're a small company like us or a bigger company, you can now offer your customers to return to any of their locations. Like Um, staples, right? Don't they partner with a bunch of staples? Right, exactly. So I think I've used this place. It's really convenient. It's super convenient, especially if you're a brand that doesn't have a huge retail footprint. Um, so you can offer your customers the ability to go um, send it back in store. So I thought that was a really interesting model. I love that as a consumer, you know, partly because just returning stuff pisses me off and I'm really bad about getting around to it. But then that makes me mad at myself too, right? Like that Everlane box that's sitting by my desk is driving (laughs) me crazy. There's one other startup that I'm curious how you guys react to this. It's called Seal. um, S-E-E-A-L? S-E-S? S is in Sam. E-E-L. Okay. And they offer brands what they're calling returns insurance. So you're on your a company's website that you're shopping at, you're checking out of your cart, and you're going to see a line item that says $5 returns insurance so that um, it allows you as a customer to be able to return freely. And the, this company, Seal, then takes on the risk of the return, and the, the brand takes on no risk or liability. So... If you return an item, Seal will refund you the money. They'll take the product back. I'm not really sure what they're going to do with the products. Um, but the, So they're offering this new idea of returns insurance, charging it to the customer, and taking the financial risk and the operational liability away from the brand. Right. What's, what's, what do you guys think of that idea? That's Wall Street taking over oh. again. It just adds another layer of finance, and it doesn't do anything about solving the returns problem. Right, it's exactly. Shifting I, the money around. Both of the last examples we gave solves a consumer problem and a brand mm. problem, but mm. where do the returns go? How mm. do they get back on the shelf? That's yeah. what no one has figured out. I spoke with a company like Sealed, I can't remember if it was them, and they approached me and they were asking me when I was running that business if I could sell their returns. 
Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. How come you didn't do that business, Rachel? Oh, that's a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> the okay. website is still up. I might still do What's it. What's it called? It's called Kept Skew, and I might still do it. It's on pause, but I have I, another direction I would want to take it in, which is secret. But I think I learned oh, a lot secrets. of the, in the, next, the next iteration of that business would be a little different. Okay. Well, we obviously have to talk to that issue in the future when At you're ready point. to talk about it. Um, something else that we're talking about again already and we're only on our seventh podcast. Last week, do you guys remember, we talked with Amanda Shendrick of Quartz. She'd done this great investigation that actually came out of her looking for a coat to take on vacation at H&M, H&M and she found that they were um, they had some very deceptive labels uh, about how green um, their, this, that coat was and a lot of other things. Well, that story is not over. It's gone places. Her story is, and there's more. Sourcing Journal just reported this week or last week that... Um, there's a class action lawsuit was filed in the Southern District of New York that where they do a lot of good uh, consumer protection lawsuits. This month, it's accused H&M of deceiving consumers about the veracity of H&M's sustainability claims through the use of, quote, false and misleading, end quote, environmental scorecards and advertising. The lawsuit cited a June investigation by news outlet Quartz, which said it found errors in more than half of the scorecards H&M used to assert that an item of clothing was better for the planet. So H&M is in some real hot water now. It's gotten legal. Is that scary? Is that for wonderful? H&M I mean, scary or, for scary for them, for not us. for us, right? Like, it's literally, <laughs> I can't believe it. I have had years of mm-hmm. obvious greenwashing. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm inundated on a daily basis mm-hmm. with press releases from brands saying that this is sustainable, that's sustainable. I used to actually try to parse through them. Now I'm like, you claim you're sustainable, <laughs> delete, right? Because mm, they just, wow. I feel like they're just never That's living so up. To I love how that Christina's means- screens are sustainable PR press releases. I mean, just saying it's green or sustainable or something, yeah. if there's not something That's that looks like are. science in that press release proving it, it's just. Honestly, if I were a company that claims sustainability, um, I would be very worried about these cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I would right? be looking through. You know, mm-hmm. what do we have online and how are we talking about <laughs> yeah. it? Because remember, Amanda, she, you know, she's this incredible journalist, but she used her skills as just a shopper. Right. To, mm-hmm. to stump- it wasn't, right. you know, That's right. it wasn't kind of investigative um, reporting that uncovered it. It was just, you know. Um, she just her- wanted clothes. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I would be very concerned about other citizens' arrests yeah. coming my way. And Yeah. How do you two feel about this? I was actually surprised that I didn't. I didn't think it could go there, even though I know a lot. There's class action lawsuits all the time. Maybe one of my reasons for not thinking that it would go there is because the damage. I mean, even um, Chelsea Commodore, this woman who you, you can't find much a about her. A mystery online. woman. I love it. Mystery can you, woman. Can you who file this case a lawsuit H&M? as, under a pseudonym, by the way? Because I could. I was, a, I was wondering that too, whether it was a. I think it is. I think it's a pseudonym. Maybe it's. Maybe I found it's one woman on LinkedIn <laughs> named uh, Chelsea Commodore, and I don't think just based on the. Professional I, yeah, it, it might be. I mean, I think it's maybe, you know, it might be smart to protect yourself. But, you know, she's not. Because what, what are the damages? Um, and so I think that's maybe that's why, you know, it's not something that came to mind as a class action lawsuit. Because you're not, you're not obviously. Well, yeah. Right, exactly. Well, you think well, about yeah. physical or, yeah. Well, what we didn't bring up, actually, I, I realized in, uh, in our interview with Amanda that was pointed out in one of these articles about the lawsuit is that they were more expensive that's than the, uh, that's, I that's that it. I that too. Although I being less sustainable. 
So that's right. it. That's the so that's maybe that's where you go for the damages. Yep. Is and were, yeah. my other question that I would have for Amanda if we had her back on was, was do we know how long they've been up? For what period of time yeah. and how much, what was the premium that they were charging for these products? And then, and then you know, that's where you kind of get to your, get to your answer. I, you know, I, I got to think that there's a lot of different ways that you could prove damages. You could prove damages, I guess you have to, for an individual because it's a class action lawsuit. Right. But what if a hot dog company was selling vegan hot dogs and then it turned out that they're full of pork guts? Yeah. You wouldn't sue based on the price differential. No, you would be, that's true. You would true. sue based on, you, you know, you have, I had a belief in this product that is in line with my Abs- you're lifestyle, right. right? So I, I feel like it's right. the same kind of thing. And, and we're probably applying a higher bar because I think it's it's purely for false advertising. Um, and yeah. I think just just on that basis alone, you have right. a legal claim. Right. Um, so watch out, greenwashers. I also liked how she went into recycling um, and, and, and sort oh. of mentioned that, you know, they're running these recycling programs that aren't actually recycling. And that goes into basically a lack of definition and standards that we need desperately 100%. right yes. in this industry because um Absolutely. in yeah. in, the, in the industry that they're working with in recycling they do call themselves recycling and it's reuse which isn't necessarily wrong but it is misleading to a lot of customers exactly there's no way of claiming sustainability right now without uh policy definition standards you know baseline yeah. data and and then the the question is i mean i think what this lawsuit does is it the the response to it will show us which direction sort of we're going in terms of holding Absolutely. companies accountable the, yeah. w- but what they can't do is is call themselves sustainable right away by taking a few months to figure out how to be sustainable because fundamentally fast fashion models aren't necessarily sustainable and we haven't grappled with that so yeah. there's a lot on the policy and regulation definition and standards front that really needs to happen to call yourself sustainable, I think. Yeah. As usual, I always like to look at, you know, where, you know, is there a parallel example in a different industry where it worked, kind of this definition of language issue? And I feel like, you know, um, you look at the history of the word organic and how how did that regulation come to pass? And it was interesting because it was, there was a, um, obviously, decades of misuse and consumer mistrust with that word because it was applied um, irregularly for a long time. But there was a case in 1989 where a chemical that was used as an apple ripening agent was found to cause oh, cancer in kids. Yes, it was like this huge scandal, right? And it was like exactly the level of scandal that you needed to kind of jumpstart federal yeah. action. And, and that led to the next year, the Organic Foods Production Act, which was the the, the law that kind of regulated, okay, how are we going to define this term and what does it exactly mean? The thing that I'm curious about is whether these cases will rise to that level. Because with the Apple case, you know, it was on the cover of every magazine. Yeah. It led the top of every newscast. Um, it's apples and kids and cancer. Yeah. Like, I you think know, it's nothing more visceral. Like, You're right, exactly. So fashion are, 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 and beauty. Right, right. I think fashion and beauty have a harder time. They have a harder case to make because yeah. you're not like ingesting it, even though you kind of are through your skin. Like even in our last episode, we talked about how there's trace amounts of asbestos in kids' makeup and it can't even like move through <laughs> Congress to stop that, you know, that practice. Um, and right. so I with, think most people don't think about that. That they're that they yeah. are absorbing their clothing through their skin. Yeah. I mean, they mm. like wrinkle-free men's shirts. You know, they put mm. formaldehyde yeah. and other chemicals in the in the fabric so that you don't have to iron it. But those they've proven this. They they find the formaldehyde being absorbed through the skin. I did not know that, and that is yes. quite disturbing. Okay, the UK 
recently has been attempting to do some um, some regulations about this. They announced that they're investigating three companies, ASOS, Boohoo, and ASDA. I wasn't just familiar ASDA, ASDA. I, th- I think it's a gr- grocery store, as you guys know. Yep. Anyway, they're being investigated. There's a preliminary look in January. Gave the UK reason to dig in deeper. It sounds like the issue is creating some eco-friendly uh, lines of clothing. At least they sound eco-friendly, but they're not detailing how they are. ASOS has something called the Responsible Edit, and um, Boohoo has Ready for the Future. ASDA has George for Good. Um, And they say that they're using recycled materials in the clothing, but it's not always clear how much they're using. We've seen this, we've talked about this in the past, right? Or even what those recycled materials are. Um, And it may be that some items uh, may not have any recycled materials at all, even though they claim it. So the UK is investigating this. Um, It sounds like they're are some moves, it's sort of government by yeah. go- nation nation by nation, right, as to which nations are going to come down. And it's all happening at hard once. On these claims. And it's all happening at once, which is interesting. I think that this yeah. reminded me sort of of, uh, I, it, I think it is sort of parallel to the FTC and our green guides, which also have up to, need updating right now. So it so what they're claiming the UK law in the UK lawsuit is that these brands are in violation of the Green Claims Code and that um, they have uh, you know labeling systems that lack clarity or marketing claims that lack clarity and are even being misused. For instance, um, saying that uh, claiming a garment is made out of recycled fibers and not saying how many, or um, saying that a garment is using BCI cotton, which is a certain kind of standard of uh, cotton, which is respected, but though the cotton only being used in trims or a small portion of the garment. So even if they win, though, I still go back to the same question I was asking earlier, is like, what is their definition of a recycled garment? What is that sh- threshold? Do they have yeah. definitions and standards around this? Because if not, then those policymakers need to work with the brands to do that so we can all get on the same page about what it means to be sustainable. Otherwise, we're going to call ourselves like conscious and sustainable, like like everybody's operating in the dark, really. And it, of course, will be abused. You know, it feels like we did that in the food industry years ago. We totally have right. an example of how to right. do it. Yeah, exactly. There's a roadmap. Exactly. We just need to do it. Yeah, we have a roadmap. <laughs> exactly. Do you guys feel optimistic about this? Do you feel like we're entering a new era? Mm-hmm. I do. I think the, so. The era I of accountability. So. The consumer pressure has happened, and now we're getting policy pressure. And I think that's, like, Sheila, you always talk about how we've seen this happen in other industries before. And this is kind of what totally. needs to happen, right? Yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, I think there's pressure from every from every angle, from from biz, from businesses and startups and the startup community and from consumers, from policymakers now start increasingly. And so I, I think it's inevitable. There's this case that I, I had never heard of, but did, have you guys heard of this like the largest organic fraud case? No. Have you heard about this? No, no, no. no. about this guy? Is this um, happening now? No, it was a couple of years ago. Um, so essentially, uh, there was this farmer who apparently had sold over a period of seven years $120 million worth of products, um, advertised as organic, but actually weren't. Um, and, you know, it was there was a main farmer that was kind of leading the charge on it, and there were a few other farmers involved as well. But the main person got a 10-year wow. prison sentence in 2019 for it. Whoa, um, prison. That's prison. teeth. 
Yeah, so that's that teeth right there. I mean, usually, <laughs> you, usually you get fines or you get barred from the industry. Um, I think this is the first time somebody's gotten a prison sentence for it. But I, I, I and I, I'm sure Rachel, you would agree. You can't have these policies without an effective yeah, remediation there has, there mechanism. Has to be consequences. Yeah. and I think that I think that there's also some low hanging fruit here. It doesn't need to be as complicated as as we'd think. I I read a paper by um, a, a lawyer named Bettina Baumgarten, and she talks about um, how we could update. Uh, labeling laws fairly easily, and they haven't like pro- like our our garment labels, clothing, clothing labeling, labeling. They haven't been updated yeah. since 1958, and she argues that um, the reason we created clothing labels were, was very much for the same reasons that we need to update our clothing labels now, and it was for increased transparency with um, industrialization. People wanted to know that that their wool wasn't being um, combined with cheaper fibers. Uh, And they wanted to know how to care for their garments if they were being combined with cheaper fibers because they no longer knew how to care for these items. They would care for them in the same way and then they would be destroyed. I guess at that time, there was a strong sort of preference for American-made and, um, you know, uh, people wanted to know that their items were being made in America. And now we have these labels that haven't been updated since 1958. And we need to know the same things, but more now with um, globalization, mm. meaning we need to, we should know which factory the items were made in, not just the final country of origin where they were put together. And then we also sort of need to know how much recycled content yeah, exactly. And is what's recycled? The, uh, the garment. You know? Yeah, is it pre or post consumer? Is it made from plastic bottles or, or what? And then also with the rise of e-commerce, um, e-commerce uh, on websites were not required to put labels. Basically, like when you go to the item, you don't have to show the you don't have to show how to care for the item, what it's made of, where it was yeah. made. So you don't understand that until you actually get it in the mail. That's an interesting. So point. that could be contributing to returns as well. Like, oh, I didn't want to have to dry clean this. I'm sending it back. You know, so we feel like there's some movement. There's an increased interest in accountability in apparel and what's in apparel, um, as there was many, you know, decades ago in the food industry. The fashion industry is trailing far behind, but maybe we're getting someplace. We need pressure on legal authorities around the world to put some teeth in in the regulations. Okay, let's move on to our hot buttons. I always like to hear what's on you guys' mind. Have your buttons been pressed this week? <laughs> always. Always, <laughs> always. Okay, well, I, I just wanted to shout out my friend, uh, uh, Alexander Debat. He has a line of bags called Any Bag that she, he makes out of his, his family's garment factory in the uh, garment district. He's a leather goods maker, like a really high-quality um, leather goods maker. And when they lost a lot of their business during COVID, what he started to do was retool some of his uh, looming machines for plastic oh. bags uh, recovered from New York City streets. And wow. he got featured in the New York Times either this week or last wow. for having now recycled 588,000 bags. It's now 10% Yay. of his revenue. That's amazing. You know, I had, a, I had a plastic bag hot button this week too. So you guys know I'm up at, um, at our family's vacation place and I was having some work done in the house and I've got this painter and his son who are from Mexico who've been work, working with us for years. And the son, who's like 21 years old, was looking for a garbage bag to throw some stuff away. And, um, mm-hmm. and I said, oh, you know, they're over here and... I pointed. I mentioned because they looked a little funny that I don't buy plastic bags. I buy the compostable bags. But I said, but it'll work just fine. Mm-hmm. And he said, Oh, good. I'm so mm-hmm. glad to see that. He goes, You know, in Mexico, you can't get plastic bags anymore. They were outlawed a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're kidding? behind. Yeah, 
I mean, I haven't confirmed that. Have you got? But I mean, I trust him. He's just been in Mexico. Yeah, I was just at a, a, a seminar, um, and there were some folks from Europe there who just could not believe that you could get plastic bags in the states. And just maybe we in the U.S. <laughs> need to hear more about the fact that plastic bags everywhere is not actually the norm or necessary. Right. Right. Um, my hot button is really is um, will feel slightly irrelevant to what we usually talk about, but I'm going to bring it back full circle, I promise. Um, so it's about this company, Dollar Tree. Are you guys familiar with this company? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's one around the corner rural from my America. house. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, not even rural. Although it's, it <laughs> looks like Dollar E because uh, some of the, the lights are on. Light. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so this so this company, I've been, I've been reading up on them for folks who may not be aware. They're headquartered in Virginia. They're about 30 years old at this point. 16,000 stores across the country, 200,000 employees, um, $26 billion in revenue. So this is actually a massive, I didn't realize, mm. I didn't realize how big this company is. Um, they're usually located near low-income communities. They do, right. um, they do offer some essentials in some of their locations, like toilet paper and some basic groceries. But mo- for the most part, they're offering kind of seasonal or holiday um, toys or trinkets or decorations. They're in the news this week because the Department of Labor found more than 300 safety violations for their employees and fined them $1.3 million. Um, Obviously not good. Um, But I think they're worth paying attention to for another reason. Their business model is really similar to fast fashion in that Mm -hmm. they're producing high quantity um, goods at very low costs. Um, and obviously reselling it to consumers at at very low cost. Oh, I thought they were just liquidation. No, no. They're producing their own. I thought I thought it was like TJ Maxx where it was like liquidated mostly. They have their own supply chain um, and their model rests on the idea that the consumer disposes of the products that they buy and buys more and more every year. So really similar to fast fashion. Um, and the thing that's really interesting is that right now activist shareholders – have been trying to hold them accountable for their impact on the environment Mm. and getting them to commit to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And the management has been fighting um, these shareholders. They're in the middle of this fight right now. And it'll be really interesting to see how it lands um, because I think there will be some insights about mm-hmm. ways in which we, in the in the broader sense, might engage with fast fashion companies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Good one. Well, that is all for the show. Please, listeners, support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Yes, Anne! Our senior engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. Don't buy those things. Just iron or go wrinkly. What's wrong with wrinkly? Right. (laughs)
great. Look at Brad Pitt in his great. That was very wrinkly, and he looks great. 